Hey guys, um, so today I wanted to talk about the qualifications of leadership in the church. Uh, and we wanted to bring out three, uh, three points specifically. Uh, number one, uh, what, um, number one, the fact that there are qualifications and, uh, what those qualifications are based on. Are they based on your character or are they based on your gifts? Are they based on uh, your calling or are they based on the fact that you have a need to be used uh, and a need to be appreciated by people? Um, the second thing is uh, who do those qualifications apply to? Uh, do those qualifications uh, only apply to the pastor? Uh, do those qualifications apply to, say, people on the worship team, people in the nursery? Um, or do those qualifications not apply to the, the pastor? Uh, who, who do the qualifications apply to? And the third thing is, obviously, what are those qualifications? So, yeah, if you'll turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to talk about them, okay? So, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, 1 Timothy is, uh, in chapter 3, is the main place where we get the qualifications for leaders, uh, for elders, for deacons, and, and uh, things of that nature. So, yeah, if you'll turn there in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says... It says, if a man, it, oh, sorry, it says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be, now, again, um, some churches would be surprised that there are, what, you mean there's qualifications? That I can't just have a calling? That I can't just go to seminary? That, uh... I can't just be elevated by the board of my church. It says, uh, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, in other words, leadership in the church, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. Do you see that? So the first thing right out of the gate says that if you're going to be a leader in the church, your life, your character, what people perceive in you, has to be above reproach. And when it talks about you being above reproach, it's talking not just about the things that are seen about your life, as we're going we're gonna to see, it's talking about not only those things, but also and maybe especially more the things that are not seen. Because the fact of the matter is, is our lives, a lot of times uh, what people see of us is a lot like what people see of um, icebergs. You, you know, an iceberg, the vast majority of the iceberg is underwater and it can't be seen. So it is with us a lot of times, probably most of the time. It's like you really, and that's the way it was with Ravi Zacharias and a lot of preachers that have fallen and a lot of... Um, a lot of the failings that have happened in churches and that are continuing then to happen in churches and that are happening in churches right now is that what happens is on the outward, everything looks good, right? Kind of like the Pharisees. Every, the, the person looks like they, they might be a good husband, father, whatever and stuff. And then you find out that that person had a dark side to him. Right, and uh, in First John, it's talking about Jesus, and it says, "In Him there is no darkness at all." And I've really been meditating on that scripture a lot lately because that's how I want my life to be. 
Um, we, you know, it, it can be said that we all have um, areas of darkness that we're dealing with, right? And uh, but that's the thing about Christianity, right? Uh, so many of us come to Jesus because we've got a problem, we've got an addiction, or we've got hang-ups, or we've got, you know, I, I, you know, maybe I yell at my wife, or I've got anger problems, or I've, I've got fantasy problems, or whatever it is. So we come to Jesus, or I've got drinking problems, whatever. We come to Jesus because we've got these problems, and maybe Jesus might deliver us from that big problem, but then, uh, when you begin the the whole thing about Christianity again, we've said it a million times is not um, just this religious thing that we do. It's this relationship that we have with Him, right? Which is what God intended from the very beginning. He's always wanted relationship with us. So when we come into Christianity, when we when we um, allow Jesus to come into us by his Holy Spirit, it begun, begins a lifelong process of being shaped, molded, and changed into the image of Christ. We can no longer live the way that we used to live. We're no longer the people that we used to be because he's transforming us daily. He's renewing our minds and we're going from glory to glory, from strength to strength. And the person that I was 10 years ago is not the person that I am now because of the work that he's doing in my heart and the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. And so as believers, there should be this continuous and it will be happening until the day that he takes us home because uh, if you're anything like me, you got a lot of stuff that he's had to clean out, right? And if and, and I can tell you that the people that know me the closest know that he's done a lot of work in me, which is the way it should be. But there's no point in which, because none of us have arrived and none of us will arrive. Paul himself said, I have not attained to it. I have not arrived. And we on this side of heaven, we'll never arrive because there's so much garbage in us. But we should be getting more and more and more like Jesus. And if we're not, we need to stop and ask ourselves, is there something wrong? Is there something that I'm not doing? Am I not clinging to him as closely as I should be? So this walk that we have is a walk of discipleship. It's not just one time asking Jesus into my heart. It's not going to church. And we just passed Easter season. There are so many people who go to church on Christmas and on Easter and the rest of the year, they live their lives any way that they want to do. I want to tell you, please understand what I'm saying to you. If you are that person, that will not save you. Okay? Because the only thing that can and will save us is having a relationship with Jesus. And here's the thing. Here's the frank, simple thing. If you don't want to be with God now, what makes you think you're going to be with God through all eternity? You won't. So, I know that there's lots of churches that you can go to and they'll just say, Yeah, welcome this Easter Sunday. We, we want to welcome all you visitors. What they should be saying is, look, if you're just coming here on Easter and Sunday, Easter and Christmas, you need to repent and you need to come to know God, which this has nothing to do with my message. But hopefully somebody listening, um, that's meant for you. Back to 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, an overseer or any leader in the church then must be above reproach. 
And again, we I've I've met so many leaders in the body of Christ who who just who have secret sins, who live their lives the way they want to, they they treat their wives terribly, they they have temper problems, they have all these issues that no one knows about. And again, it's like Ravi. People and and God especially wants his ministers to be above reproach. He wants us to live. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And if you are a minister, if you are a leader in your church, now whether that's a pastor or whether that's a leader in a Bible study, whether that's a leader in a home fellowship, whether whether it's a worship leader, if you are a leader, God has caused you to live in such a way that people can look at you and say, Man, if I want to be close to God, I need to imitate that person. It says, the overseer must be the husband of one wife. In other words, again, we've talked about it in the past. The the three major downfalls to anybody in ministry, to any Christian essentially, are gold, is gold, glory, and girls. You're doing it for the money. You're doing it for the uh, acclaim. Or you're doing it for, you know, you like the girls. And so it's saying that you must, the the leader in the church must be the husband of one wife. And to me, that means several things. Number one, it means, you know, again, it goes against the polygamy that was all throughout the Old Testament, which was getting away from what God had intended, right? God intended, God brought Adam and Eve together in the garden. He met, he had one man for one woman. That was his design. That was his purpose all along. And so in the New Testament, they were getting back to that. But it also means something like um, I, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, a missionary that goes to Africa every year or whatever and, and, and ministers in Africa. And that person was telling me that in Africa, a lot of ministers, pastors, evangelists, teachers, preachers and stuff, when they go on the road, they have wives in other places. And they feel like they're justified in that. And if we're going to call ourselves believers and we're going to say that we live according to the word of God, your culture has to die. Amen. All those things that we used to cling to my anger is because, you know, I'm Irish and, and, and things and I have this past and, you know, and I, I drink a lot because my dad drank a lot. And all those things die at the cross. When we come to the Jesus, when we come to Jesus, all all of our past goes. Paul says we leave all those things behind. And he was talking about his good things as well as his bad as his bad things. When we come to the cross, your culture, the thing that you used to cling to needs to kneel at the cross and be crucified. So if you're going to be a leader in the church, you are a one-woman man. Or if you're a female, you're a one-man woman, and you are devoted to your, your family, and you are devoted to your children, and, and you're not someone that just plays around and, and, and uses other women. Um, I remember again, and, and again, we're just using Ravi as um, not to tear him down or to tear what he, the things that he did down. People are doing that. That's not what we're here to. We're just using those things to show as an example of things not to do. 
But again, Ravi told one of the women, or maybe more than one of the women, that basically, you're God's reward to me. Really? You mean your wife wasn't enough reward to me, to you? The Bible says we are to be satisfied with our wives. And honestly, you know, to go fully into the scripture, it says, be satisfied with the breasts of your own wife. And that's, again, the way that God has designed it. Marriage is is from God. Sex is from God. It is something to be enjoyed. God created it with the design that it be enjoyed by two people. It's not, again, as though we're these prudish, um, you know, oh, don't, don't have sex. Don't, you know, only do it for procreation. Only, you know, touch a woman. It's not about that at all. And it's not that we're being, you know, oh, we don't believe in sex. We believe in it as Christians. We believe in it, that it's ordained of God, and that it's a good thing within the bounds of marriage and within the sanction that God has given us, okay? Going on, it says, um, it says, an overseer must be uh, above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, Hospitable, again, we're talking about temperate. That means someone that's able to control their temper. How many leaders in the body of Christ, you have to walk on eggshells around. And if you're not careful, you know that that person's going to snap on you. And, and, and the man is surrounded by yes men because no one dares to say anything against him. And again, this is what happens. We put leaders on pedestals and no one can tear them down. And no one dares say something because even the other leaders are that are surrounded, it's like a buffer, right? Those persons surround themselves with other leaders that as soon as you step out of line, they're there to, to slap you down and to make sure that, uh, that, you, that you need to know your place. And again, we so quickly first forget that this is what the Reformation was about. And so many Christian churches, the churches themselves have as their pastor, he's their Pope. He speaks from God to them and you cannot disagree with anything that person says. And you sure better not, uh, you, you best keep your opinions to yourself. All right. That person is in complete disobedience to the word of God. The, the, the leaders that lose their tempers and lash out and make people pay for crossing them are in disobedience to the word of God. It says that they have to be prudent. In other words, wise. It says that they must be respectable. How many, how many leaders by the, the shenanigans and the things that they do are laughed at and mocked by the world? How many leaders can the world look at and say, all that person's in it is for the money. All that person's in it is for the fame. All that person is in it for, for the things that they can get out of it. They're disrespecting the word of God. It says they must be hospitable. It says they must be able to teach. Now, when it says that they're able to teach, that's two things, I think. I think, number one, it means that, yes, they should be able to, 
Just like Paul, uh, Paul told Timothy, you have to um, study to show yourself approved a workman, a workman who can rightly discern the word of God. And so it has to be someone who studies the Bible. It has to be someone who's immersed in the Bible. And again, the, the person, you do not study the Bible to teach. I mean, even so many like Sunday school classes and, and children's church, we have these modules that people teach. You don't have to study the Bible for yourself. You don't have to have to have to go out and get manna for yourself every day. All you got to do is take this outline that they give you, read the outline. So when it says that a person should be able to teach, that means that you have gone to the well yourself, right? That you're not getting your manna from someone else. That you're not taking uh, Spur one of Spurgeon's sermons and just just changing the words to it, and you're just preaching someone else's sermon, right? And I'm not saying that it's bad to borrow from other people. I think all preachers do do that to some to some extent. But it means that you need to have your own walk with God. You need to have your own time of studying the Word of God and getting to know Him through His Word. And then when you get behind the pulpit or when you get into a place of teaching, that will just automatically flow out of you. And I think the second part of that, it says that you must be able to teach. I think that it also means that you must be teachable, right? What does that mean? That means that this person has to be humble. Again, so many leaders in ministries and in churches and Bible studies, it, I've seen it so, so many times as a believer. Even in tiny little Bible studies, you know, where, where it might be three or four person. The person in charge is the know-it-all, the be-it-all, the end-it-all. Whatever that person says is word. Whatever that person says is law, and you can't tell them anything, and you can't tell them that they're wrong, and you can't teach them anything. Here's the thing. You cannot learn unless you're teachable, and you cannot teach unless you can learn, right? So when we teach, when God, especially if God has called us to teach, it's because of, of the fact that we have spent time with him, just like with the scripture that we quoted last time, like um, all the people were talking about the, the disciples and they're, they're like, these people are unlearned men. They're ignorant. But it says, but they could tell that they had been with Jesus. And that's the whole thing. We are not preaching head knowledge. We're not just we're not puffing ourselves with pride and say, look how much I know. Look what I can tell you about. Look, I got this hidden revelation over here, or I've got this, I've got this tidbit that you've never heard about. And man, we're, I'm going to tell you something that's going to knock your socks off. It's not about that. Whenever we speak, we speak as it were the words of God, and it is for the building up of the saints and no other reason. It's not to make yourself boastful or proud or to show how much wisdom and knowledge you got, but it's to feed the sheep. Moving on. It says that person must not be addicted to wine or drugs or whatever. And again, we've heard of so many preachers that, that are addicted to drugs, addicted to wine. 
or alcohol and stuff, and, and they do stupid things. I've heard of preachers kicking people in the chest, you know, in the name of Jesus, pulling people out of caskets and all kinds of crazy stuff. And then you find out later that that person is addicted to drugs. And again, there are no one questions that in the church. Right. And if someone says anything, the first people jump up immediately saying, don't judge lest you be judged. Where are the people saying that God has qualifications on his ministers and God doesn't say and God does not just allow anybody to minister. And this is the problem with the church today, because so many people are ministering out of their own flesh and out of their own need to be needed or whatever the reason is, or because of their sinful desires, rather than I'm ministering because God has put it in my heart to feed his sheep, to feed his lambs. It says he must not be addicted to wine or pugnacious. In other words, disagreeable. You can't get along with him. He's Mr. Big Shot. It says, but he's gentle, right? Again, we talked about last week how so many leaders, you can't even get close to them because they're too good. They're too high. They're too holy. It says they must be gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Again, if you're in the ministry for what you can get out of it, for how much you can get paid, you need to repent. It says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will, how will, how will he take care of the church of God? Look at this in verse 6. Again, we talked about it last week. And not a new convert, so that he will not be con become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And again, you know, people get saved. These famous people get saved, whether they're movie stars, whether they're they're rock stars, whether they're football uh, sports stars or whatever. As soon as they get saved, oh, man, we're going to give you a platform. And then when they fall, we're like, well, what happened to that person? Or when you find out, you know. Ten months later that they're, you know, they're alcoholics and they're beating their spouse or whatever. It's like, well, I thought these people were saved. God has qualifications on his leaders. And again, the problem with the church, or a large part of the problem with the church, is that we don't. We just let anyone teach us. We watch Christian television and people say the most ludicrous things. And we just believe them. And we just accept it. Again, we were talking about last week how, how all these prophets, so-called, were prophesying that Trump was going to win the, the presidency and, and stuff, and he didn't. And yet, how many people still follow those people? I saw prophecy after prophecy of people who said, Coronavirus, be gone in the name of Jesus. I curse you, coronavirus. Here it is almost a year later. We still have coronavirus. And yet, how many people still follow them? Because we are like silly sheep who just want people to tickle our ears. 
rather than the people who are just hungry for God. And I don't care about this stuff. All I want is manna from heaven. All I want is something that's going to bring me closer to Jesus. And God is wanting to wake up a people because that's the thing. We will get what we want. If you want just to have your ear tick, your ears tickled, God will give you that. God will give you preachers in accordance with your own desires. But if you're someone for the, that's hungry and that just wants to know Jesus, He will give you that also. Amen? In verse 7, it says, And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And again, how many preachers does the world just laugh at? And the, that's the thing. You know, the world in some ways is a lot wiser than us believers are because the world looks at these charlatans and these fakers and they laugh at them. And they know that they're charlatans. They know that they're fakers. And yet we as believers say, well, don't judge lest you be judged. Don't touch the Lord's anointed. All right? Wake up. God wants His church to wake up. Wake up, sleepers. Arise and the light of the Lord will shine on you. Turn to Titus. Still looking at the qualifications of leaders. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is Paul speaking to Titus. And we know that Paul, everywhere he went, he put people in charge. That's the thing, you know, uh, Paul wasn't like these evangelists that just come into town and, you know, I'm going to be in your town February 29th and for two nights or whatever. And he comes into town with this whirlwind and then he blows out. And what happens to peop the people that, that supposedly got saved? Paul's concern was establishing churches because he was doing what Jesus said, and he's, his concern was to make disciples, not to make converts, and to say, oh yeah, we led 15 people to the Lord last night, or we led 500 people to the Lord last night. Really? Well, where are they a week later? Paul's concern was for their welfare, that they walk after the Lord all the days of their life. It doesn't matter if someone comes and receives Jesus, asks Jesus into their heart. What matters is, are you walking with him? And will you walk with him to the end of your days? In Titus 1 verse 5, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I had directed you. Namely, again, if any man is above reproach, there's that above reproach again. So it's not an accident, right? Verse 5 again. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband is of one wife, again, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So look at verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And that's the thing. So many, my, my church this, my church that. It's not your church. And it's not your people. It's God's church. And it's God's people. And you are only a steward. 
There have been many times in history when, say, like, uh, for instance, like a king died and like he had a son that was maybe underage, like, you know, five or six years old or whatever. That per that son could not rule until he became of age. And so they would appoint a steward. And in a, and there are many cases in history where that steward tried to usurp the king and take the con and, and take the kingship for himself. Beware that you do that in the house of God. They are his sheep. You are only an under-shepherd. They are not your sheep. They're the Lord's sheep. And as such, it's they're the Lord's, right? We don't we don't we don't abuse the sheep. We don't use them for our own purposes. We don't we don't manhandle them. We don't we don't uh, you know abuse them. They're the Lord's sheep. We're just shepherds, just like the scripture we read last week. We're just unworthy servants doing what we're supposed to do. And so many people get such a high opinion of themselves because they're placed in a, pl a position of authority. Completely forgetting that authority in the body of Christ starts from the bottom, not the top. And that authority does not reign and rule like the Gentiles, like the unbelievers, like the world. That authority puts a towel around its waist and it serves and it lays down its life. That is the only true authority in the church. Now, I'm not saying there, there won't be times when you have to discipline, and hopefully we're going to talk about uh, discipline in the house of God next week, But because you will. I mean, because sheep wander, right? But the thing is, is you discipline them as a shepherd who loves them, who knows them by name, who Jesus said he would leave the 99 to go after that one sheep. And it's not, you know, to, to get that person to toe the line. It's for the good of that sheep. And because that sheep is straying away and you want only the best for them and you want them to come back to the shepherd. Amen. It says, uh, again, the verse seven, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, again, not someone that you just can't get along with, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, and uh, uh, to this devout thing, so many people forget why they're doing ministry, and 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 the thing is, is we keep seeing over and over that he must be, he he must. Um, be a husband of one wife, and and basically it's saying that you got to love your family, you got to love your children. So many people put ministry before their families, and they lose their families in the process, and they lose their devotion to God in the process, which is the root word of devout. Right? Here's the thing: this is the order in which we serve God. 
and the order in which God, the, that we order our lives around. God is number one. If God has given you a family, a wife and children, they're number two. And then ministry comes after that, right? You are supposed to love your wife as Christ loves the church. You're to love your children. You're to respect them. You're to honor them. You're to serve your family. And if you lose your, believe me, I want my children to be saved. I want to live for all eternity with my children in the presence of God. And it scares me to think that my children might be lost. And so many people get caught up in ministry and they totally lose their families. God has commanded you to love your family. And the problem is, is we lose, our, we lose the whole order of that, right? And it becomes, after a while, where ministry is everything. It is the end all, be all. It's everything. It's why I exist. It is not why you exist. You're, you exist to serve God. We exist. We, we lose so often sight of God because we're ministering. And people get burned out. And people walk away from God because they get burned out and they have, they, people can minister for years without even spending any time in prayer, without spending any time in his word, without spending any time with their families. And so, so they're ministering, it's like they're just an empty shell. God has not called it to be that way. Again, all ministry that we do should flow from being in his presence and from being with Jesus. And the first people that we minister to are our families. And then we minister to everyone else. Verse 8, he says, But hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, Again, how many, how many ministers have we seen that have no self-control? Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with, that, with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For those, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, look at this, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach. Stop right there. How many preachers you turn on the television and they're teaching things that they should not teach? And why do they do it? Let's look at the rest of that. For the sake of sordid gain. They're doing it for the money. Just like Balaam. Remember the story of Balaam? Who prophesied for money and, and, and Balak tried to get them to prophesy against the people of God? And finally, he wound up being destroyed because he kept trying to go against God and kept trying to please man for money. And again, and, and this is the thing too, so many preachers, so many teachers, so many leaders in the body of Christ are men pleasers rather than God pleasers. And we try to make men happy. Like even, even the teaching that people do a lot of times, it's like, 
Well, what can I say to get these people on board with me? Or you know what? I don't want to say something tough because it's I know it's going to ruffle their feathers. It's going to make somebody angry. I'm going to get a mad uh, I'm going to get this email from somebody who, who who's mad at me and stuff. And man, I don't want to do that. So what you're telling me is you'd rather God was mad at you than man, right? We are not to be men pleasers, but to be God pleasers. That's the vocation of leadership in church. Now then, let's talk about deacons. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, and we'll talk about, we're just going to read about what the qualifications are, and then we're going to talk about what actually deacons are. Deacons, likewise, in verse 8, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued. In other words, not, not fake, right? Again, you're not supposed to have a, have a mask on, the, you know, the smiling Christian mask when you go to church and, oh, everything's great, everything's wonderful, I'm this man of God. And, uh, you know, you can call yourself a man of God all day long. And, and honestly, people that are truly men of God don't really have to call themselves men of God, Right? And I know so many people who call themselves men of God, but they're two-faced. And behind the scenes, they're a different person altogether. It says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Do you see that? And so we're, we're going to talk about deacons. Deacons basically are table waiters, right? Deacons are the people that mow the yard. Deacons are the secretaries. Deacons are the ones who lead children's church. They're the ones that do the necessary things for the church that aren't necessary ministry. And it's not saying, and it's what it's saying is that, you know, you don't just let anybody do those things. And, and I'm not putting any kind of laws or anything like that, but we'll talk about it more in detail. But let's just continue reading the uh, qualifications. It says, these men must also first be tested. Now, if deacons have to be tested, how much more do you think elders and, and leaders have to be tested, Right. Again, we don't just put anyone in authority. We don't just put anyone in leadership. It has to be someone that you know this person truly walks with God. It says, Then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. Look at this in verse 11. Women must likewise. Now we started earlier in verse 1 talking about uh overseers, elders, etc., and stuff like that. Now we're talking about deacons. And in this direct context, he says women also. What is he talking about? Deacons, right? Now I know that goes against some of your theology, but this is just the word of God. He says women also must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. He continues in verse 12, deacons must be husbands. So right there in the middle of elders and deacons, in the middle of it, he says women also. What is he saying? Again, this has nothing to do with the message, but it goes to show pretty clearly that women were allowed to be deacons, right? 
Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, good managers of their children and of their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to see what deacons are. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says now this now this is the early church. This is right after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and people are getting saved by the by the truckloads, and 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 the church is, the church is, uh, just being built, and as such, there's all these people are getting saved, and thousands of people getting getting saved, and basically they're unequipped to deal with all these people, and so they start to put in measures on how to deal with them. Verse 6, it says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, the Hebrew Jews against the, the Gentile uh, Jews. And again, we talked about this before. It says, Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily excuse me, serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve table, tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation. Now, again, we just looked at the qualifications. Here's some more. They have to have good reputation. What else does it say? It says they have to be full of the Spirit. Now, when it says that you've got to be full of the Spirit, he's not saying that, that they're able to speak in tongues really well or they're able to lay hands on people and heal people and stuff. He means their character. He's meaning the fruits of the Spirit, not so much the gifts of the Spirit even though that is included too, but he's mainly talking about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peacefulness, patience, kindness, all that stuff. Full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Again, what is he talking about? Serving tables, right? Something main, mundane. Something He's not talking about, you know, look in verse 4. He says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Do you see that? And so he's saying even in these small mundane things that the church needs to operate on, people like uh, the people that run the sound booth, people that uh, operate the nursery, people that do these little serving things that make the ministry work, they, now we do it for expedience, Right. I mean, it's like, you know, we're trying to build this huge church, so we, we're going to need some nursery workers, so we'll just pay whoever to come in and, and watch our children. How many churches have gotten in trouble? Because they didn't even do a background checks on those people, and so it turned out that those people were child molesters, right? Again, God expects us to do these things in a right way for there to be qualifications not just to let anybody come in and minister not just, and that is ministry waiting tables was ministry doing these mundane things we think is no big deal it's ministry doing the children's church is ministry when you lead children's church do you pray for those kids is it something that you take before the Lord or is it like, oh man, I volunteered because no one else would do it? And that's the thing. Again, what we do is we're trying to build these big churches. So we just try to get people in to fill these spots, even on worship teams. I've seen it so many times. People can be on worship teams and not even be saved. There are some cheap, there's some churches that pay professional musicians who aren't even believers to help lead worship. 
Worship is a holy, holy thing before the Lord. David instituted 24-hour worship, priests going worshiping 24 hours a day in courses to the Lord. Worship is holy and sacred, and we have turned it into this, oh, it's just this song service that we got to do to get people warmed up and ready for the service. In my opinion, in some ways, sometimes worship is more important than the teaching, especially the teaching that we have in a lot of our churches, because it is worshiping and glorifying our King and our God. Every picture that shows us, that gives us an unveiling in the Word of God of heaven, what are they doing? They're worshiping God. They're giving glory and honor to him. And that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be sacred. And I've been on worship teams and I've seen worship teams where the people, they're just musicians and they're there because they can play. And their lives are, are terrible. They party and they do all the, they sleep around and they, they, there's, when, when they come, and the thing is, is, is when, when, when you worship leader, and if you are on a worship team, when you come before the Lord on a Sunday morning or whenever it is, even in small group settings or whatever, you need to come with the awesomeness, knowing what you're doing. And this is not just a song service. And it's not just we're going to sing five, five fast songs, two slow songs. They're going to take up the offering. We're going to do it. It's not that. You are standing in the presence of God and you are leading people into the presence of the Lord. And you should do it with fear and trembling. And if you're not, you need to re-examine what you're doing. And again, the thing is, is that we have gotten so far away than, from the New Testament church. They didn't have built, they didn't need buildings. They didn't need sound systems. They didn't need musical instruments. And I'm not saying that if, you, if you've got musical instruments and can play them, but you can do it unto the Lord, by all means do it. But the thing is, is, is we become so finicky. I won't go to this church because they don't do hymns. Or I won't go to this church because they, they, all they do is, is modern worship. We were, leading church, we were leading a small group and we had some African Americans who, who didn't like our style of worship because it wasn't R&B enough. And honestly, I've gone to African-American churches and it's not my thing, but I can still worship the Lord in that situation. And I can lay aside my differences. I can lay aside the things that I expect, my expectations, and I should be able to worship the Lord in no matter what kind of church it is, in no matter what kind of worship they're doing. If they're doing it a cappella, if they're doing it with organs, if they're doing it with guitars, Whatever, if they are doing it as unto the Lord and you can sense that the glory of God is truly in it and it's not for show, it's not for me to demonstrate how good I am on the guitar or this drum solo I can do, then you should be able to worship God in no matter what that setting is. But the problem is, is again, we're building a kingdom for ourselves. 
and we got to have these smoke and we got to have these multicolored lights and we got to have these professional musicians that can play and just blow people away. Doesn't matter whether anointed by the Holy Spirit or not. It doesn't matter whether they even know God or not. We're just trying to fill these seats with, with people because the more people we can get in, the bigger our offering is. Again, we were talking about Zach Poonin's church last week, River of Life Fellowship, and how none of their ministers get paid. All their ministers work full-time jobs. Something else that I loved about that church that most churches would say, oh, that's blasphemy. They don't even take an offering. They say, look, we got a box in the back. If you want to give money, give money. But they don't stop the service to take up an offering. And that's as far as they go on it. How many churches in America would do that? Oh, we got bills to pay. Why do you have bills to pay? Why does it have to be these huge edifices? Why does it have to be these huge buildings? Now, I understand if the glory of God is there and if the presence of God is there, if you need a bigger place, get a bigger place. But, you know, you can worship God. Jesus said, where two or more are gathered into the, in my name, there I am in the midst of them. If you're together with another believer in Christ and, and God is there and you're talking about the things of God and the Holy Spirit's there, you are having church. We don't need all these other things. They're nice to have, sure. It's nice to have a building to go to. The church in China doesn't need those things. I've talked to a missionary in South, Af South America where people from the bush will walk for days to come to a church service and, and, and just sit around in an open area. And they'll face, they'll, they'll face rivers full of crocodiles. They'll face jaguars and, and snakes and things like that to walk for days to attend church. The American the modern church in, in first world countries has become so soft and careless. Would you walk a mile if you had to to go to church? Would you go to a church that's just a plain building with no ornamentation, that doesn't have any fancy lights, that doesn't have a sound system, that doesn't even have speakers, that doesn't have carpet on the floor, that maybe has rough folding metal chairs? Would you go to a church like that? Would you go to a church in the wintertime that doesn't have any heaters and you just had to huddle around together with blankets? Would you go to a church in the summertime that has no air conditioning? These things. And I'm not saying that you do those, that you would find something like that on purpose to, to torture yourself or to make yourself holy or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. But what would you do to follow Jesus? Some people are doing these things today, now. But some of us would never even think of such a thing. Whew, man, my air conditioner's out. I'm not going to church. Again, just things to think about. Um... So again, even um, oh, okay. Sorry, I lost my place. We were talking about um, we were talking about Stephen, right? What was Stephen? Stephen was just a table waiter. 
right? Um, let's look at verse 5. The statement, um, it says, look at verse 4. But we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This statement, verse 5, found approval with the whole congregation. Then they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they brought them before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. How often does this happen to our church workers? All right? It says, um, and so the word of God, verse 7, kept spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Look at this in verse 8, their table waiter. And Stephen, the, the guy who just waited tables, was a nobody, wasn't an apostle, wasn't a disciple, wasn't somebody great. He just waited tables and, and made sure people weren't fighting over what they were getting. He says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So again, it's not a problem being gifted by the Holy Spirit. But the main thing that the Holy Spirit wants his leaders to have are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. He said, But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This table waiter, this nobody in the church had so much wisdom, so much relationship with God that these, these, these people that tried to trip him up in his words, they couldn't even argue with him because he was so filled with the spirit of God. And this, my point is this, is every one of us should be like this. Whether you are being used by God in some great way or whether you're not. Whether you're just this meaningless nobody who, who serves tables, who, who vacuums the floor, who, who serves your church and nobody ever notices. No one ever gives you a plaque. No one ever has a dinner for you. You can be filled. You can be full of the Holy Spirit of God. You can be a man or woman who walks with God. And God would be well pleased with that. But so many of us, if we don't get a little recognition, it's like, well, no one notices me, so I'm not going to do it anymore. Or the pastor walked by and he didn't acknowledge me. Or no one gave me a dinner. Or no one gave me a plaque to red, or a, a gift certificate to Red Lobster. So I'm just going to quit doing it. Are you doing it for man or are you doing it for the Lord? says in verse 11, Then they secretly induced men to say, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and against the law. And we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. I mean, this is our table waiter, and, and this is what the early church was like. So many of us as pastors, teachers, evangelists, te preachers, leaders, we have none of this. How many of us could look at our lives and say there's something different about that person. 
God, I want to be someone that someone can look at my life in private and in public. I want my wife to look at me and say, man, there's something different about you. I want my kids to look and say, my dad, there's something different about him. And what you see in public is what he is in private. And I confess, I have a long way to go. But that is my desire. And that's what I long for. So in Acts chapter 7, Peter or Stephen goes through this whole thing. He, he, he talks, he's talking about how God moved in the past and God did all these things in the Old Testament and blah, 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 and this and stuff. And you know that the people at the council are going, what is this person talking about? And, and some of them are probably falling asleep and they're bored out of their minds because he's just rambling on and on. He's talking about how, you know, our fathers did this and they were in the wilderness and they did that and stuff. And then he ends with this and he says, you men, who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, just stop right there. Imagine, so you're, I mean, he, he went through this whole chapter, this whole two or three minute spiel, this whole history that they all knew about, that they all had read and stuff, and that they, oh, they were all familiar with. And so, you know, these guys are dozing off and they're falling asleep and they're just bored out of their minds. And all of a sudden, he, they hear him say, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. I'm sure at that point, all of their ears just perked up and they're like, what? And he had their attention now. He says, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears and you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of, your, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who have received the law is ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Look at their reaction. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. I bet they were. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. Imagine someone that's so angry that they start gnashing their teeth at you. That is someone who is angry. It says, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen. And he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12, because 1 Corinthians 12 talks about spiritual gifts. And this is what we put people in leadership based on in our churches, on their giftings. Right? So many people, so many times, there are humble, God-seeking people who love Jesus with all of our hearts that no one ever sees, no one ever appreciates, no one ever no one wants to put them in position, right? It's the people who push themselves forward. The people say, hey, 
I'm a man of God. I got this gift. I got that gift. I'm able to, man, I'm able to walk through walls. I'm able to, I'm able to levitate. I'm able to lay hands on people and, and man, you should see what I can do in the name of the Lord. And that's the people that we put in charge of our churches. People who have the gifts rather than the fruits. And again, we see the results all around us. Because if you have the giftings of the Holy Spirit, but you don't have the fruit, you will fall. And great will be that fall. And Satan will get a foothold in your life. And you will be used in as, as an example to the church and not in a good way. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. says now there's variety of gifts but the same spirit um, it says and there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord there are varieties of effects but the same God who works all things in all persons but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit listen for, to this this is the reason why you have been given gifts of the spirit and each one of us should have some sort of gift right and that's the thing we all want these major gifts, right? We want to be the we want to be the big person. We want to be the man or the woman of God. We want to be the person that people notices. What if the gift that God has given you is to wait tables? The thing is, is Stephen, I'm sure, did not plan on being put in the spotlight. I don't think that he planned on being stoned to death. I don't think that's what was what his goal was. His goal was just to serve God and to serve his church and to serve the people of God. It says there are varieties of effects in verse 6, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation. And again, what if your gift is to do small things that no one notices? Can you do that with all of your heart? Can you do that without grumbling? Can you do that if no one notices you? Verse 6 again, There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is the purpose of the gift that God has given you. It is to build up, to edify the people of God. It's not to use it for yourself. You notice Jesus Ned never did any miracles for himself, right? That was a whole thing of the temptations by Satan. Jesus could have done all those things. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. You don't think he could have done miracles and, and made bread for himself? You don't think he could have taken all the kingdoms of the world and uh, by himself? You don't think he could have? And that's what sim Satan's temptations were to do, was to get him to please his own flesh with the giftings that God had given him. And he never did it. The miracles that Jesus did were always for the people of God and not for himself. Even when he started, he said, tell no one. He wasn't trying to get fame and glory. He said, tell no one. It's not like our preachers today who want to tell everyone, right? Who want to get video cameras to follow them around. 
so that they'll be known. It says, for to one is, in verse 8, to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works in all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all are members of the body, though they are many, for one body, so also is Christ. Um, turn to verse 18. He says, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again to the, knee, the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, on, sorry, I can't speak English. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. Again, we give so much glory and honor to the big cheeses. And we totally ignore the the little people that do the that do big things. The people in our churches that your church wouldn't even function if it weren't for that person. And that's the thing. Again, there's this dichotomy where when you're serving God, you don't do it to be noticed. And if you're doing it to be noticed or if you're doing it to get paid, you're doing it for the wrong reason. But at the same time, if you are in leadership, you are to appreciate those who labor for you. You are to respect them. You are to give them honor. And especially, it says, the ones who, who don't seem like big shots. Again, we, we completely brush past those people, right? And completely ignore those people. But they're worthy of honor. It says... Uh, Verse 22 again, on the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Now, think of this. This is written by Paul, but this is the heart of God. And let me say to you, if you have a ministry that God has given you, if it's a ministry of encouragement, if it's a ministry of prayer, if it's a ministry of, of hospitality, if it's this tiny ministry that you think nobody notices, if you're doing it unto God, He esteems you just as much, if not more, than the big man, right? Than the big apostle, than the big preacher, than the big teacher. God sees what you do for Him. Verse 24, whereas, uh, verse 23, those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. And again, um, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked. And again, let me just say, all these people that are getting the fame, the notoriety, if you're doing it for that purpose, if you're doing it for the money, for the big houses, for the cars, for the jets, you have received your reward in full. 
and don't expect anything when you get to heaven. The first will be last. The last will be first. Verse 25, so that there be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member's honored, all the members rejoice in it. And we've totally gotten away from that, right? Church has become such a machine that now people are just numbers. Now people are just cogs in the machine. People can 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 miss months worth of services. You know, again, the people that are in the limelight, if if they miss a week, everyone's like, well, where's brother so-and-so? Where's sister so-and-so? But the little people, if they miss, do we care about them? All right? Jesus cares about the nobodies. Jesus leaves the 99 to go after the nobodies. Again, <laughs> we got it backwards. We think the name people, the big people are the important ones. It's the nobodies that he sees. And I'm not saying that if you're a big person, someone that's in the light and stuff like that, but if you're doing it with all your heart into the Lord, he sees that as well. Okay? And he receives that as a fragrant aroma, a pleasing sacrifice. Verse 26, and if one member suffers, all the members should anyway suffer with it. If one member's honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, and so it's it's just saying that we love each other, that we look out for each other, that we care for one another, right? And again, church has completely lost that. You can you can there's something and I'm not arguing today about the need for big churches, small churches, whatever. Big churches can do things small churches can't do. Blah, 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 and stuff. But the fact that people walk into our churches can come sometime for months, can come longer than that sometimes, and then leave never finding Jesus, never finding friendships. There's something wrong with that. Verse 27, now you're Christ's body and individually members of it. God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. So again, these are things that God appoints. So if you're doing the small things, and I'm speaking specifically about the helps, the administration, things like that, even like tongues, which might not seem important or whatever, or interpretations of tongues, God sees what you're doing if you're doing it for him. It says, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? And back to verse 30, 30 where it says, all do not speak with tongues, do they? Again, there's a whole denomination that says, well, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. Well, that's not what the Bible says. He says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. There's nothing wrong with desiring the gifts and stuff. Again, as long as you're doing it for the purpose of serving God and for the purpose of serving his sheep. And so, and then right here, 
He's where he goes in the first Corinthians 13 that we're all familiar with. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. All these things that we like to put on our wall or that we like to speak, you know, to, to speak at marriages, when, you know, marriage ceremonies when someone's getting married, all follows what he talks about loving one another and using your gifts to serve one another. All right. So let's end with this. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 3 verse 23. Now, um, he, let's start in verse 18 because we're going to see that, that uh, he's talking about several different things, but he ties them all together. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. And again, I know so many churches where the man's the head of the house. And woman, you got to submit to him. You got to do whatever he tells you to do, even if it's sin. It says, husbands, if, if, if it's a sin for a, a wife not to submit to her husband, it's also a sin for a husband not to love his wife as child, Christ loves the church. 19. Husband loves your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. So again, you see the give and take. Everybody, we all have our part to play. We all submit. Leaders, submit to one another. Leaders, submit to your spiritual children sometimes. It's like us with real children. We all know how sometimes you're doing something stupid and your six-year-old child can say something that just totally shows what an idiot you're being. Dad, why are you doing that? That's dumb. Oh, right? And if you're proud and arrogant, you're like, shut up, kid. You do what I tell you to do. But if you're humble, you say, man, you know what? He's right. All right? It says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves and all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And so all these people, which are essentially everyone in the church, right? Whatever you do, no matter who you are in the church, whether you're a leader, whether you're a follower, whether you're a deacon, whether you serve in small areas where you do small things, whether you do large things, whether you're a mother, whether you're children, whether you're, you're a worker, whatever it is, it says whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, right? Not to get your reward from men. Not like every time, you know, your boss walks out, you, you, you know, go, go to horse playing and, and just wasting time and, and joking and, you know, wasting time, you know, and just being an idiot. But whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. If you're a leader, if you are leading people in the body of Christ in any sphere, 
whether it's children's church, whether it's youth ministry. And again, youth ministry is another place where we'll just put anyone in there who will keep those unruly kids down and, and you know, and, and we play games with them and stuff instead of teaching them about the Lord. And in children's church, we teach them little veggie tales and stuff instead of teaching them the word of God. You know, it was Hitler and Stalin who said, you got to get the kids. If you get the kids, you got the next generation. And in the Bible, it said, teach your kids diligently these things. But in the church, we just we just look at it as babysitting. All right. I'll just send them to the youth group, send them to the to the nursery. They'll just watch them, show them a veggie tales or, you know, talk to them about pimples or, or whatever they do in youth ministry rather than teaching them the word of God because you have a calling on your life to teach those children to instruct those young sheep he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality so no matter what your calling is no matter and every one of us have a calling Okay, and your calling may be something that I I didn't even name or didn't even talk about or, or anything like that. But you have a calling from God. Take your calling as an awesome responsibility and an opportunity to serve the Lord. And he will reward you. But just like Jesus said, if if your calling is... is he says he said if you if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble and again I'm talking to preachers all across this nation and across the world when you cause little ones who believe in me to stumble it would be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and to be cast into the sea so Again, and I didn't mean to <laughs> leave off in such a negative note, but that the thing about it is, is ministry in any form. And that may just be to your children. It may be to your husband. It may to your be, be to your wife. We all minister every day as believers, or we should be anyway. And again, it's to be taken as an awesome responsibility. And if it's treated like that, if you're doing it with all your heart as unto the Lord, He will see it and He will reward it. Amen. God bless you guys.